0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves And what it means to be fully adopted into the family of god we hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith if you have any questions or comments be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes here's john
1: there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ what a beautiful statement what a powerful statement especially to those of us who are suffering from internal turmoil and conflict in our lives. These are the opening words of Romans chapter 8, a chapter which we would all do good to commit to memory, a chapter that sets us free. As we consider these words in this session, and as we consider the information in this session, I want to dedicate this time to any of you who are struggling To you who are struggling with the inner turmoil of not being satisfied with yourself, for you who are struggling with the inner battles that you are raging within your heart to do what is right and not being able to do it, to quit doing what is wrong and destructive in your life, these are words of comfort and assurance to all of us who have internal strife. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has told us about that very conflict. He has told us that when we would do good, we wind up doing what's wrong. And when we don't want to do what's wrong, we do it anyhow. Because even though we are brand new people in Christ, even though we are brand new creatures, we are brand new spirit beings, we yet have a powerful sin nature known as the flesh that wars against us, that wars against our mind of the spirit and actually brings us into bondage. In chapter eight of Romans, Paul now gets to the very heart issue of the answer to our conflict. He now brings in God's marvelous provisions through his spirit to set us free who are held in bondage and in captivity to our own fleshly nature and the addictions and dysfunction of our nature. That key to freedom is found right here in these first verses of Romans chapter eight when he declares publicly There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now the phrase in Christ needs to be remembered for two reasons. Number one, it's used very frequently throughout the New Testament to give us an idea of our position in Christ, describes our position in Jesus. And it ought to call to our minds the things we've already learned out of Romans chapter 6 where we were told that we were joined to Christ in his death so that the old man, old person we were, could be crucified once and for all with him in his death. We were joined to Christ in his burial so that old man could be dealt with once and for all. That old identity we had as natural descendants of Adam, that self-centered and depraved identity we had, was once and for all put away, and we were joined to Christ in his resurrection so that we have become a new person, a new creature in Christ Jesus. This phrase, in Christ, represents all that God has done for us, we've learned about in Romans chapter 6, to make us brand new persons. Now, it also should represent in our minds what we've also studied concerning the position graphically of our being safe and secure in Christ Jesus you recall from John's gospel, he said in John chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus said, at that day you shall know that I am in the Father. So here's the Father. And we put Jesus in the Father. Here's Jesus. But also he went a step further to say, and you are in me. So here we are in Christ. And further, he said, I am in you. Not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. So we are actually in a position, in a new position before God. Now, there are various ways to describe this new position. Some people have said, and I think it's a very beautiful way to describe it, that when we're in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't really see the old person we were, but rather he sees the righteousness and the character of his son, Jesus Christ, in us. This is also a position of security because when we're in Christ, we realize that nothing can come to us that is not permitted by God the Father first and then Jesus. And nothing can come into our life that is not dealt with by the Christ who lives within us. But the thing we're most concerned about at this point is the fact that what he tells us in verse 1 is because of our position in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation There is no possibility of us suffering the wrath and punishment of God because we are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is such an unbelievable truth, such an unbelievable good news that we need to take the time to consider the next few verses that Paul reveals to us in these next few verses what it is that God has done to make this possible for us. So he elaborates on why it is that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ in the next few verses. Look with me, if you will, to verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, this is a beautiful statement, and by way of explanation as to why there is no condemnation, he says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, referring to That position that we have, that unique position we have in Christ, makes us free. That principle of being in Christ makes us free from receiving any condemnation whatsoever. And it makes us free, then, from the law of sin and death. You all realize, of course, the law of sin and death is just simply that when you sin, you die. Because the wages of sin is death. As we've taken the time to underscore in our study in Romans chapter 6... This brand new person that is in Christ, this new person that God has made us to be, does not sin. As a matter of fact, in Romans 6:11, we are told upon, to, told to count upon the fact that we are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. This new person then is free from the law of sin and death, simply because this new person is righteous in Christ and is therefore free from sin or its consequences, which is death. But how could God do that? How could he actually take we with our sordid track record and our background of failure and mistakes and transgressions, and how could he actually make us free from the law of sin and death? He further explains in verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemn sin in the flesh. First of all, we need to understand what the law could not do. All of Romans 7 told us what the law could not do. The law could not make us righteous. All the law really could do was to reveal to us what righteousness really is, to demand that we live that way, and condemn us to death for not being able to do that. But you see, the law could not make us righteous. The law could not produce righteousness within us. So what the law could not do, God did. And look at specifically how he did that. God, sending his own son, that's Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, he took on a body like ours, and was made like us in all respects in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, because of our sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now let's just take a moment to consider when it was that he actually condemned sin in the flesh. If you all, I'm sure, are familiar with the story of the life of Christ, how he came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost, you'll know that the most important moment of his life was when he fulfilled the very purpose of his coming into this world by offering himself a sacrifice for sin on the cross of Calvary. You see, Jesus was not crucified simply because he couldn't outrun the religious folks of the day. He was not crucified because the temple guard happened to track him down with the help of Judas, the betrayer, in the garden and and sneaked up on him and caught him by surprise one night. He was not crucified because the Romans were indifferent to Jewish ritual and to Jewish ideas. He was not crucified because the Romans thought that he was creating a rebellion in their empire. Jesus was crucified because he came to offer himself a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, Isaiah prophesied about this thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene. And in his prophecy in Isaiah 53, he tells us what happened at that crucifixion. He tells us that Jesus bore our sins and our condemnation, our iniquity on himself. He actually paid the price that was really ours when he hung on the cross. The, the gospel writers record the story of his crucifixion and put in the, the various details. And one, one of the details that I particularly uh, am impressed with is the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, when he was being crucified, from the hour of 12 noon to about 3 in the afternoon, the whole world was engulfed in absolute total darkness. Because you see, it was at that time During those hours when the light of the world, Jesus, became sin for us and the whole world was enshrouded in darkness. Now Isaiah tells us that if we had been there and were able to somehow shine a little flashlight up on the cross to behold Jesus during those hours of darkness, we would not have been able to recognize him as a man. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be sin for us so that God's wrath was poured out. All of God's condemnation, all of the punishment of God against sin was poured out in Jesus. This is how God is free to justify or declare us righteous because Jesus took our place. This is what he's saying when he says, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. You see, the reason why God tolerates any sin in the flesh today, the reason he tolerates and lets it slide, so to speak, is because Jesus has already dealt with it. Let's use our other example here of being in Christ, our other diagram of the triangles. The new person we are in Christ, the center triangle, the inward man or the new creature. This inward man is righteous with the righteousness of Christ, but it's surrounded by all this flesh. Have you ever wondered why it is that we can actually experience sin in our life, by that I mean that our flesh can actually sin, and God just doesn't zap us right away? Now, you've probably not thought too much about that with regards to yourself, but I'm, sh- I'm sure you've wondered why God hasn't zapped other people who sin, haven't you, from time to time? How can they get away with that? Why doesn't he just do something? Why doesn't God do something about these people and their wrongdoing, their sin, especially those those that commit what we consider to be the most vile sins of one sort or another. Why doesn't God do something about that? You see, the point is, God has done something about that. He has condemned all sin in the flesh in his son, Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, he took what was really ours upon himself. Now, an analogy that may help us understand that is that of a criminal who is caught. Let's suppose someone broke into your home and they killed your family. Here we have a murderer. And the police arrested them and got to them before you did. Now, they go to court. They go to trial in our justice system to be proven guilty and then have a sentence passed down upon them. And suppose you waited for the due process of the law, and it seemed like it took forever. But finally, you're in the courtroom And sure enough, the evidence shows that they are guilty, but the judge says they're under no condemnation. They're not guilty. I'm going to let them go. We would be outraged with such a thing, wouldn't we? Our sense of justice would be violated. We would say, how could he possibly let someone go who's guilty like that? You see, many of us have trouble accepting verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 for the same reason. Because intuitively, we know that we're guilty. Intuitively, we know that we are guilty of more sins than we've gotten caught for. How many of you have gotten away with more sins than you've gotten caught for? You know what I'm talking about. We know that we're guilty. And we know then, when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation, that this doesn't line up with our sense of justice. It doesn't line up. And it doesn't really help to say, oh, well, God's grace covers. Because... See, when we, when we say that, we actually get the idea that God's grace just means it doesn't matter anymore. You can sin and get away with it. But you see, that's not what God's grace is about at all. Still, our sense of justice is violated by the fact that we who are guilty by nature are set free. Just as much as that criminal, that murderer, was, was set free by the judge. Our sense of justice is, is violated by that until we realize the price that God paid. Using that same kind of analogy, let's suppose the judge says, you're right, it's not fair. You're right, your sense of justice has been violated, and it's not fair. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Instead of putting this murderer to death for his crime, I'm going to put my own son to death in the place of this murderer. Now, at that point, your sense of justice begins to line up a little bit, because, you see, sin needs to be paid for. Wrongdoing needs to be paid for in order for justice to prevail. And so someone else paying for it may, in, in effect, it may line up your sense of justice a little more, but we still have a problem. The one who is guilty still goes free, even if someone else paid for. It. And so we still have a little trouble accepting this, unless we follow all the way through in the analogy and we come to realize that in allowing the, the judge allowing his son to pay the price for the one who was guilty would actually transform that murderer, would actually change that murderer into one who would become a servant of righteousness. You see, if we could actually transform and change that murderer, then we begin to see what grace is about. Now this is essentially what God has done. We who were deserving of death, we who are guilty by nature and deserving of punishment, God sent his son Jesus to condemn sin in the flesh for this reason. Look at verse 4 now. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled, might be completed in us. You see, the reason God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins is not just to set us free from the law of sin and death. That's a negative reason, and it's an important reason to all of us, certainly, but there's more to it than just setting us free from the law of sin and death. There's actually a transformation process that occurs, a change deep within the personal structure of each human being that believes this gospel There is a transformation that occurs in our hearts that is represented here as the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. Now, let's look again at our diagram so we'll see what what we're talking about. He's saying that God sent his son Jesus into this world to die on the cross for us to actually make this brand new person right here, this new person that we are who is now fulfilling all righteousness. This brand new person is radically different from the person we used to be that produced this flesh. This brand new person is a new spirit being that is holy and without blame before God in love. This new person that we are has the righteousness of Christ given to us freely as a gift. But remember what kind of righteousness that is. The righteousness of Christ is not only a righteousness that doesn't sin from now on, but as far as I know and as far as any of you know, Christ never has sinned. In fact, the Bible says he knew no sin. So the righteousness of Christ is not just that we don't sin anymore. The righteousness of the Christ is we never have sinned. We're not now sinning, and we never will sin. This is a radical transformation of who we used to be. This is so radically different from who we used to be that it's hard for us to accept. So he assures us here that the purpose that God sent his Son into this world to do for us what we couldn't do on the cross, the purpose of that is to give us the fulfillment of the righteous demands of the law. Now, note the last phrase of verse 4 very carefully. This gives some folks a lot of problem, unless you go back and remember what we've learned already in Romans 6. The last phrase of verse 4 says, "...who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit." And it seems to us, when we read this, that possibly the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but that the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled in those who... uh, or in those who do not walk after the flesh, but the righteousness of the law you see, would not be fulfilled in those of us who do walk after the flesh. And perhaps at this point you're beginning to get a little nervous, and you're saying, now, wait a minute, I still have the flesh here, remember? I, I still have this, and I that flesh has a real toehold on my life, and that flesh causes me to say and do things that are not like Christ, and that flesh pokes its ugly head out at many different opportunities and times when I least expect it, so I'm not sure that I've got the righteousness of the law fulfilled in me. Well let me define this last phrase for you. Those who walk after the flesh are those who are born of the flesh. And that was the condition of all of us to begin with. All of us were born of the flesh. On that night that Nicodemus came to Jesus and interviewed him. Jesus met with him privately. Nicodemus came and tried to talk about theology, and Jesus cut right down to the hard issue, and he said, Nicodemus, let me tell you what your problem is. Your problem is you've been born once of the flesh, but you need to be born again. You need a new birth. Now, Nicodemus, of course, thinking only in the physical realm, got all confused and beside himself, and said, how can a man be born again when he's old? What are you talking about? I need to be born again. Can I... Go again into my mother's womb and be born again when I'm an adult. Jesus said, Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? A little mild rebuke there concerning his understanding of things. And then he went on to say, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh, that which is produced by the natural means of procreation, born of the flesh, is flesh. That is, it shares the characteristic of rebellion against God, of self-centeredness, of sin, of dysfunction. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. It shares the characteristic of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the characteristics of God Himself. This is why it's necessary to be born again. Now, Nicodemus began to understand at that point that Jesus was talking about an experience of having the Holy Spirit create this new person inside of us. And so what we're illustrating here is the one who walks after the flesh is the one that's born of the flesh. That used to be you. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have been born of the Spirit, the old man put to death, a new man raised up who is in Christ Jesus, you are no longer walking after the flesh. You are now walking after the Spirit. You are no longer of the flesh. You are of the Spirit. So what is true here in verse 4 about those that are of the flesh, or rather of those that are of the Spirit, is true about you. And what is that that's true? The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in you. Now all this that I've shared with you may be summarized by one general term, one provision We're going to list out three of them here in a moment, but the first one is freedom. What we have been discussing really has to do with the freedom of the Spirit. We're free from condemnation, we're free from living under the law, we're free from the habit and power and dominion of sin, we're free from the consequences and wrath of God against sin and we are free to live out a new life of righteousness. This is all the first provision God gives us in dealing with this conflict inside. He wants us to know and trust in the fact that because of who he's made us to be in Christ Jesus, we are now free. But he goes on now to list another provision, a second provision. And he gets really to the heart of the matter when he begins to describe this for us In verse 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh. Now remember who those are. Those are the natural-born folks who are after the flesh, who have not been born again. The natural-born folks who, who come into this world through natural means of procreation and have only the physical life that is given at birth naturally. They that are after the flesh do always mind the things of the flesh verse 5 but they that are after the spirit those are the ones who are born of the spirit the things of the spirit they do mind the things of the spirit now the critical thing i want us to see here is he gets to the root issue of all of our problems now by describing what we're thinking he gets down to the heart issue by looking at what it is we're thinking What is going on in our mind? Here he says, they that are after the flesh, that is, they that have only the flesh, they are not a new person in Christ, they are always thinking the things of the flesh. But they that have the new uh, creature in them, they who have and are this new spirit being, are thinking the things of the spirit. Now let's contrast that in this next verse. Verse 6, he says, For to be carnally minded or naturally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There is such a contrast here. It's an unbelievable contrast between death and life and peace. And we need to understand this from two practical angles. First of all, let's look at it in ourselves. Let's understand that When he says, they that are after the Spirit are always minding the things of the Spirit, he is talking about a new mind that God has given us. This is the real provision that is radically different from the old mind that we had. Now, it's important that you all understand at this point that every person who is in Christ Jesus, every person who is born of the Spirit, this inward man, has the mind of Christ. To the flakiest bunch of Christians in the New Testament, the Corinthians. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but you have the mind of Christ. This means you are capable of thinking like Christ, of seeing things like Christ, of reasoning like Christ, of hearing God like Christ. You have the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus and then goes on to list out the characteristics of this mind. Here the provision that he's talking about is that we who are after the Spirit and not after the flesh are always minding the things of the Spirit with the mind of Christ. Now note again the radical difference between the two. In verse 6 he says, for to be carnally minded, that's to think after the flesh. And let me, by the way, let me give you a little practical thing about this statement of carnally minded, what it means practically. It doesn't mean to be thinking of nasty thoughts. The the term carnal here doesn't just have some kind of sexual overtone to it like its modern English usage does. It means really to be thinking naturally. Now what this really boils down to, and I I don't want you to misunderstand me on this point, but I I, want to make this clear what we would call carnal mindedness a good term for carnal mindedness is what we generally refer to when we think of common sense now i know this that might be a little shocking so let me try to explain it to you when we think of common sense we think of that which everybody thinks that which everybody knows to be true and holds to be true but there are a lot of things in the scriptures that everybody holds to be true, that are wrong. As a matter of fact, I've been frequently impressed with how backwards the Bible really is to our normal way of thinking, haven't you? Haven't you been impressed with how how totally backwards it is? For instance, if we want to live, the Bible says, we have to die. If we want to get ahead, it says, we've got to humble ourselves and serve others. If we want to receive, it tells us to give. How totally backwards to our common sense. To that carnal mind. To be carnally minded, to exercise the natural human mind of the flesh, brings death, not just a physical death, and not just even a spiritual death, and separation from God, but also a personal death, known as neurosis and psychosis, a relational death, as our family system falls apart. And we, we find it hard to relate to our wives or our children or our husbands. A social death as we find it hard to relate on the job and in our society, and our culture. Where does all this come from? It comes from that carnal thinking, that carnal mindedness that he says is death. But to be spiritually minded, to exercise the mind of Christ, he says is life and peace. Now, this is so important that I want to illustrate a few characteristics for you of the mind of Christ out of Philippians chapter 2. If you care to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at some characteristics of the mind of Christ that we have and are to exercise. Beginning in verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What this means, in essence, is that we are to allow this mind to operate in our life on a daily basis that was the same mind that Jesus had in his life while he was here on earth. And then he goes on to describe it. He says, who being in the form of God, referring to Jesus, being in the form of God, being God himself, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Here's the first characteristic of the mind of Christ. Jesus knew who he was. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he came from God and he was going back to God. He was assured of his identity. This is the first and greatest characteristic of the mind of Christ that determines the quality of your life. If you know who you are, if you know that you are a child of God, that you are secure in his love and significant in his plan, then the other characteristics of the mind of Christ can flow out freely. But if you do not know your identity in Christ, this is why we've taken all this time in Romans 6, uh, to prove our identity. If we do not know who we are in Christ, then none of the other of these characteristics will flow. So the first characteristic of the mind of Christ is that he knew who he really was. As I've shared before, he, he began to understand who he really was when he was only 12 years old, when in the temple his parents came searching for him and he said, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? You see, when we know who we are, we recognize that God is our father. We recognize that Jesus is our big brother. And when I recognize that God is my father and that I am his child and that he loves me, I am free to do what most psychologists are trying to get folks to do right now in counseling, and that is to let their old man off the hook, to let their dad off the hook, to quit blaming their parents for their upbringing and to allow them to forgive their parents because they know who their real father is. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Parents are going to make mistakes because parents are not perfect. All of us were raised up by imperfect parents, but sooner or later, hopefully it would be at the age of 12, but if not at the age of 12, at least by the age of 40 or 50, we need to realize who our real father is. So we quit blaming others for our dysfunction, And start recognizing the blessings we have received from being a child of God. Jesus knew who his his real father was. He knew his real identity. He knew what his calling and purpose was. And he walked in the power of that knowledge consistently, day in and day out. Even though he was tempted, in the wilderness he was tempted, his identity questioned. Even though his own disciples and his own family members tempted and tested him about who he was. Jesus knew all the way through that he was of God, that he was the Son of God. First characteristic. But look at these others very quickly with me. Going on in verse 7, knowing who you are, knowing your identity in Christ, knowing that you are one with God, does not necessarily mean that you're going to run around bragging about it. You know, a lot of people would like to to boast about their position in Christ in this fashion. A lot of folks would like to say, well, I'm this brand new person, so I'm holy and without blame before God and love. I've been forgiven of all my sins and trespasses. I'm a brand new person now. You folks need to recognize that I'm a new person in Christ. That person doesn't yet know who they are and are not exercising the mind of Christ because that person is still concerned with seeking the approval of others. When you know who you are in Christ, When you know your true identity, it frees you from seeking the approval of man because you have the approval of God. And that frees you to go on what he says to do here in verse 7. He knew who he was, but made himself of no reputation. Literally in the Greek, this means he emptied himself of all his divine attributes. He emptied himself of all his rights and gave up all his privileges as God. If anybody had the right to expect the whole world to revolve around him, it was Jesus who created the world. If anybody had the right to expect people to love him and minister to him and worship him, it was Jesus. But when he came into this world, he gave up those rights. He gave up the rights to be ministered to so that he could minister to others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Then look at this next characteristic. He not only gave up his rights to be ministered to, but he also took upon him the form of a servant. He became a slave. It was his goal to minister to others. He was preoccupied, exercising his mind, in seeking to save that which was lost. His attention was wholly upon others and not upon his own welfare because he knew who he was and he gave up his rights to be ministered to. A fourth characteristic follows immediately after this. He not only became and took on the form of a servant, but also was made in the likeness of men. What this underscores is the fact that in the mind of Christ, we identify ourselves with others. Just like Jesus identifies with us, we identified ourselves with others. We're not standing back, arms folded, with a judgmental posture, saying, I thank God I'm not like those sinners. We are not separating ourselves and saying, I can't be like that person, I don't want to be like that person. We would rather identify ourselves with them and recognize that it doesn't matter how vile they are, if it were not for the grace of God, we could be just exactly like them. The greatest picture of Jesus identifying with us was at his baptism. When he came to begin his public ministry, he came to the River Jordan, and there John was baptizing those who had repented, those who had changed their way of thinking, changed from thinking that they could get God to bless them by keeping the law, changed their way of thinking legally to receive the grace that God was about to bestow upon them through the Messiah and say to God, God, I need a savior. I can't save myself. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. They had changed their thinking, so John baptized them in the Jordan River to illustrate that. Now, when he baptized them, he immersed them in that water, and picture in your mind a cleansing taking place. Here they are covered with absolute, vile, filthy sin. And the picture is that when they go into the water, that sin is washed away, and they come up righteous and clean. But where's the sin? The sin's still down in that water. And here comes Jesus wading out in the water, wading out to them through all that filthy water of sin, identifying himself with man. And he looked at John and he said, John, baptize me. Now that freaked old John out. John said, I can't baptize you. I'm not even worthy enough to unloose your shoes said, John, you've got to baptize me, because it's necessary to fulfill righteousness. What Jesus was talking about at that point was it's necessary, John, for me to go down into that filthiness of the human condition. It's necessary for me to identify myself completely and fully with the most filthy, vile sinner, so that in my resurrection, when I come up out of the grave, That filthy and vile sinner can identify fully with me in my righteousness. It's necessary, John, for me to identify myself with these people I love. And so John baptized him. And you remember it was then the father said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He again affirmed his identity. The mind of Christ is a mind which enables us to identify ourselves with others and their problems and their difficulties to put ourselves in their place to understand them and to apply grace to their situation. But there's more to the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ also has this characteristic in verse 8, and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself. The mind of Christ is a mind of humility. Now, it's not the false humility which says, I'm less than other people that thinks of ourselves as being less than other people. That's a false humility, especially when we run around whining about being less than other people because what we really want is somebody to come to us and say, there, there, now, it's okay, you're just as good as the rest of us, and be ministered to. That's a false humility. True humility is not that we think of ourselves as being less than other people, it's that we think of ourselves less than we think of other people. True humility is a genuine concern for others about us. That's what true humility is about. This is in the mind of Christ, a mind which we possess, that we're called upon to use. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself, and then he says, he became obedient unto death. This characteristic of the mind of Christ is the fact that he was obedient to God's word. He was obedient to God's direction. Whatever the Father told him, he would do even unto death, even if it cost him his life. He would do whatever God told him because he trusted God. Whatever he told him to do, even if it meant his death, even the shameful death on the cross, which nobody really understood at the time it happened. Jesus, exercising his mind, was obedient unto the Father, even unto death. Now, here's the admonition. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind control your life. Let this mind dominate your belief systems, your thought structures. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, all of that's fairly negative here. We start out by realizing who we are, and we like that. But then we start giving up our rights. We start humbling ourselves. We start becoming obedient, even though it means a shameful death. I'm not too sure I like that. Let's read on. So we get some hope here. Verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, an identity which is above all other identities. God has highly exalted him. Peter exhorts us in this fashion. He says, Humble yourself, "...under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time." The mind of Christ is also a mind that expects God to exalt us in due time. The mind of Christ is a mind that expects God to work things out for us in his time and his plan by his power for his glory. So the admonition here out of Philippians 2 is, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus." Now, to wrap up, let's go back to Romans chapter 8 again, and let's look again at how he describes the difference between the carnal mind and the spiritual mind. Remember, the two effects of the carnal mind and the spiritual mind is given to us in verse 5. He says, They that are after the flesh do always mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. There's two different ways of thinking that's possible. Because we still have the flesh... Romans 6 tells us we are not the flesh, but certainly we still have the flesh to deal with. The flesh has its own mind, and it's possible to use that mind rather than the mind of the spirit that's been given to the inward man, the mind of Christ. But notice the, again the, the two differences here. He says in verse 6, for to be carnally minded, using that mind of the flesh, that natural mind leads to death. It is death. But to be spiritually minded leads to life and peace, or is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's the mind of this flesh. It's enmity against God. Now, enmity is different than enemy. An enemy can be reconciled, but enmity can never be reconciled. The mind of this flesh will never be reconciled to God. That's why we've got to experience a physical death to get rid of this flesh. The mind of this flesh will never be reconciled with God, It's not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Using this mind of the flesh, the carnal mind, thinking naturally in this world, will never please God and will never bring life and peace to us. Only when we use that spiritual mind, the mind of Christ, will we have life and peace. That's why he tells us in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Allow this mind to control you. Now, we're going to talk a little later specifically about how we do that, but let me just remind you that the first thing about the mind of Christ is that he knew who he was. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was a child of God, the child of God, the Son of God. When you begin to exercise the mind of Christ is when you begin to believe that you are who God says you are. This is why we've spent so much time on Romans chapter 6 and why we've, we are following up now in Romans chapter 8, proving to ourselves from the Word of God itself who God says we are so we can believe it, so we can believe exercising faith on a daily basis that we are the children of God. As John says in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we shall be called the sons of God. And though it does not yet appear what we shall be, because we still have that fleshly nature living in this physical body, we know that we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We must first of all realize who we are and then the other characteristics of the mind of Christ will follow. As we realize that we are one with Christ Jesus, the other characteristics will follow behind. The characteristics of giving up our rights to become a servant to others, the characteristics of humbling ourselves and identifying ourselves with the human condition, reaching out in compassion to others the characteristic of being obedient unto God, even though it cost us our life. These characteristics will be worked in us as we believe who we are so that finally God will exalt us in due time. Finally, God will raise us up and seat us forever in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So what's the second great provision God has given us for this tremendous conflict that we have? The second great provision is the mind of Christ. We are under no condemnation because the spirit of, law, of the law in Christ Jesus, or life, rather, in Christ Jesus, has set us free from the law of sin and death. And we have now a brand new mind, the mind of Christ that we can reason with, that we can think with, that we can actually serve God and man with. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He tells us finally in verse 8 that those who are operating out of the mind of the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for them to please God. And at this point, you might begin to worry. You say, well, I don't know if I'm operating out of the mind of the flesh or not now. In case you're worried, just read on one more verse with me. Verse 9, Romans chapter 8. But you are not in the flesh. If so be the Spirit of God lives in you. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Spirit, as your Savior, and the Spirit, His Spirit lives inside of you, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. You do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, because the Spirit of God is living in you, what's true of Christ is true of you. So you have no worry, no fear, because you are one with Christ. He goes on to tell us in the same verse, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. What does this mean? It means you cannot receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and be born again a little bit. It means you either are a Christian or you aren't. It's kind of like being pregnant. You know, you're not a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You either have the Spirit or you don't. You either are a Christian or you are not. How do we know for sure that we're a Christian? Because we've received his spirit and his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the child of God. Now, if you're worried about that, if you're at all concerned about whether or not you have the spirit and are therefore a child of God, the answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Call on him now and say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. And he'll give you the spirit to set you free. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.